Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. All right, John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, in at the strips of linen, lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who's it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him, cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he, had, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, and again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Father, every time that we come before you, there is much to give you thanks for. We want to be people that lead lives of gratitude, never entitled, certainly grateful, recognizing it's your grace that has afforded the lives we have, God. It's your grace that has has brought such great news into our stories. So we're thankful for that today. We're thankful, God, for the reality that, that the story here in John 20 connects to our story. Who you are, who you are right now is our hope. And so would you, in the short time we have together this morning, would you make that more real to us than it's ever been? Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in this place, would you lead us to Jesus? Help us see him not just as this historical figure, but as the reigning, ruling, resurrected king who's come to save our lives and lead our lives. We commit this time to you and we ask Jesus that you'd be here and that God, you'd speak to us now as we open your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All righty. I want to teach this morning, based on the theme that we have here in John chapter 20, from the topic and the title, simply, When Hope Shows Up. When Hope Shows Up. You know, this is like the the, the traditional common theme of any big blockbuster film, right? This general idea. There's some struggle. There's some problem. There's some tension. And whether it's Iron Man showing up on the scene or some Skywalker descendant, you know, uh, whoever it is, hope shows up often to save the day. This is what our culture celebrates, and uh, it's an ultimate shadow of something we're all longing for. We recognize there's a struggle in life. We recognize that, that life is maybe not all it was intended to be, and we're looking and longing for hope to show up to show up and save the day, and not just in a trivial way or a temporary way, but we're all longing for substantial hope that we can build our whole lives upon. And listen, this is what Easter is all about. Easter is the good news that hope has shown up in the person of Jesus. He has come to bring hope into our lives. This is kind of the obvious theme of Easter. Any any scripture in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus speaks to this reality. Here is one of the most clear and common ones. 1 Peter 3. Peter's writing to the church and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy and love toward us, he begotten us, he has begotten us again, or he's brought us back to life. Notice this, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I'm not sure what Easter has meant to you. I'm not sure what Easter is about to you naturally. Maybe there's not a lot of deep meaning to it. But as it is a Christian holiday centered around Christ himself, this is what scripture has to say about Easter. Easter is the good news that Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, hope is alive. He went to the cross to bear our sin, the sins that we've committed. He lived the life we failed to live and then went to the cross, took our sin upon his shoulders. 
And he reconciled us back to God through that cross. He paid for our sin. He demonstrated God's love for us in building a bridge for us to reconnect with the God we were created to know and walk with. And beyond that, after being in the grave three days, he rose from the dead, defeating death. Uh, it's been said that this is where, like, Jesus' payment that was given on the cross was actually accepted. You know what I mean? Like, it proves. Anybody could say, I'm dying for you. But to rise from the dead, this shows God's very power over our greatest enemy, death itself. Jesus is alive. That means his death mattered. That means that his atonement actually counts. That means that you can be saved through him because he's alive. He's victorious. You know, when he went to give the check, it didn't say, you know, insufficient funds. That's like, by the way, the most embarrassing thing to happen to us, isn't it? When you're, you're just like, I promise I have some money, okay? And it's like, ding, ding, ding. When you're in that checkout line, that, that didn't happen. The resurrection of Jesus, this real historical event, is what proved that his payment was sufficient, and it proves everything that Jesus claimed about himself. I mean, the resurrection is the only hope of the Christian life. It's not filed into some of the hopes of the Christian life. It is the hope upon which everything else is built. So much so that Paul says, like, if Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus was only some past teacher who did some wondrous things and maybe represented God, but, but then he died after being crucified, if that's all there is, Paul says that we are of most people the most uh, pitiful, is what he says. Like, we're to be pitied more than anyone. Like those sad Christians that are gathering every week to worship a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who's no longer with us. Uh, that's what scripture says. Another way to think about this is if Jesus never rose from the dead, there wouldn't be a church. You, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't know the name of Jesus if there was not some resurrection that started the Christian faith. Everything is, is based upon this event in history. It's our security of hope. It's the greatest enemy defeated. This is the theme of Easter. Jesus is alive, and so you can be alive. You can reign and live with him forever in eternity. Now, what I love about the account that we read in John 20, which is, you know, it's the first Easter Sunday, and it's uh, there in John 20, and it's one of four accounts in Scripture. Um, one, one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus being a real reliable event in history, other than just the fact that his tomb is empty and we know where he was buried and there's, there's no one there. there hasn't, nobody actually is able to pinpoint the exact location of the tomb because Jesus isn't there, right? Like that's one thing. But another great evidence to Jesus' resurrection is all the eyewitnesses. Over 500 eyewitnesses who so affirmed what they saw that they saw the resurrected Jesus that they gave their very lives for that claim. I mean, if they were lying, eventually they'd be like, I'm just kidding, sorry, okay, this whole thing didn't work out, don't kill me. But they took their testimony to the grave. They were willing to stand up for what they knew they saw. It's been said that the Christian faith didn't start the resurrection or the belief in the resurrection. It was the belief in the resurrection that started the Christian faith. People believe Jesus rose, and there's many different accounts of this in history. There's, there's even special um, terms and even methods that historians will use to test the validity of an event in history, and all the accounts in the Gospels match those with accuracy. John chapter 20 is a really significant one. This, this of, like I said, four different accounts in the scriptures of Jesus' resurrection. I think the thing I love most about John 20 
Jesus is alive from the dead, and he's showing himself to his followers. It is the way in this passage that hope shows up. Uh, It can be really easy to take the gospel, to take the Christian message, to take this idea of that through the resurrection, hope has shown up, and sort of file it away to some future kind of like eternal thing that Christians are hoping is true. Like Jesus is risen from the dead and our hope is out there somewhere waiting for us. What's so amazing about John 20 is we see that the hope of Jesus, it faces where we're at right now. It it brings it to the ground level. That's John 20. The resurrection of Jesus is not just something to go, oh, one day in the future I'll be in heaven. But the resurrection of Jesus means there's hope for your life right now. There's hope, listen, for even the lowest points of your life. That's what we see in John 20. John 20, the context here is hopelessness. This is not hope showing up where hope is kind of there, kind of revitalizing it, like, oh, I needed that little extra wind of hope. John 20 is a study on hopelessness. And let me say, there's reason for hopelessness. These are all the followers of Jesus, and um, his death to us, and even the empty tomb, it's something we celebrate as a triumph. For like, Jesus is alive, he died for sin, we know where he is. But at these points in history... On those days just following his death, it was utter hopelessness. I mean, Jesus was the one to restore Israel. Jesus was the promised Messiah. Jesus was going to be the one to reverse the curse and fix all the brokenness in this world. The disciples had given their whole lives. They sold their livelihood to follow him. They watched him do wonders and signs. They knew that he was God. And yet he's been buried. And to make matters worse, someone took his body. Like someone, somehow, that's what they thought, stole his body. Again, we look on at that event as a triumph. To them, it's a tragedy. John 20 shows us hopelessness in its deepest form. There are three figures in John 20. There's a woman named Mary Magdalene. There's the the 10 disciples. There starts with 12, R.I.P. Judas, and then... um, Thomas is like going to the bathroom or something during the scene. It's like the worst part to go to the the bathroom in the movie. That's what happens to Thomas. So you have 10 of the disciples. And then you have our guy Thomas, our guy Tom, a.k.a. the twin is what he's called. Each of these individuals are living in a state of hopelessness. There's, There's been a similar event in their lives. And here's what's interesting. It's amazing how we could all experience the same general suffering of life yet we land in hopelessness in a different way. For some of us, our hopelessness is manifested in anxiety because we feel like we can't get a grip on anything. For others of us, our hopelessness is, is marked by this sense of like disenchanted disenfranchisement where you just can't believe it. You're just kind of like the naturalist. All that we know is what we have here on earth. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, it's just like that sort of mindset where your, your hopelessness is secular humanism. And then there's others of us, our hopelessness today, maybe we don't show it to people, but deep down when we're all alone, we're just um, racked with sorrow, like real sadness, 
like real sadness of heart that you might not show in your emotions, it might look like anger, right? But deep down, there's hopelessness, there's sadness. What's really interesting about all these characters is that their hopelessness took on different forms. And yet, listen, this is exactly where hope showed up. Hope loves to show up in Jesus, listen, where all hope is lost. Whenever all hope is lost, you have set a stage for Jesus to show up. When all hope is lost, when your heart is racked with, with sorrow, when your mind is filled with anxiety, when you've become jaded and you don't believe anything anymore because of what you've walked through, you have set the stage to experience Easter, to experience the resurrected Jesus in your situation. This gives great courage to me as a fellow struggler in the realm of hopelessness. Anybody else know what that's like? Where I can say I believe all the right things, but in my life I can live from a sense of depressed faith, a, a sense of, of maybe like Thomas, a sense of doubt. And it's in this situation that Jesus shows up. And I love the phrase that's used all throughout this passage. It says twice in this chapter that Jesus shows up in the midst. He's alive. You know what this means? Not just that you have a hope in the future, but that he can show up right now in the midst of your hopelessness. He can show up in the midst of wherever hope has been lost. Let, let's see how that played out in this chapter. Did you see this? The first was Mary Magdalene. And here's what we'll say about Mary Magdalene. Here's who she represents. Mary Magdalene represents the story of someone in which hope has shown up in the midst of bitter sorrow. And that hope that has showed up in the presence and person of Jesus, it restores and produces joy where there's bitter sorrow. Here's Mary, Mary Magdalene. Hope shows up in the midst of her bitter, bitter sorrow, producing joy. Mary Magdalene is the first character we're introduced to. It says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. This is like the first ever sunrise Easter service. And before the sun is up, it's still dark. And Mary is there because she has nowhere else to go. We're going to see that. Jesus is the one who's changed her life. He's transformed her life. The Bible tells us in, the, in Luke chapter 8 that Mary was a... A, an individual who was completely overcome by demonic forces. She was bound by brokenness, really evil, sick, and twisted forces that took probably advantage of her vulnerabilities, whether through abuse or whatever the case is, and she has ended up in a really dark spot, and then she met Jesus, and Jesus brought heaven into her life. Jesus brought light into darkness. Jesus brought life where there was death. Her life was changed. She's given everything to follow him, to know him, to learn from him, to be his disciple. And now she's at the tomb after his death. Mary is sorrowful in her heart. She comes while it's early, and she noticed that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is a massive, multi-ton stone that's been rolled away. It says this, then she ran, and she came to Simon Peter. I got to tell the disciples. I went to go visit his tomb, and the stone is rolled away. And so she went to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. Uh, many people believe this, that this is John himself who's writing this. So he refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and Peter and John are kind of the homies. They're the, they're the duo, okay? They're the God duo. And they, uh, they have this kind of like cute rivalry going. You're going to see it cute sibling rivalry. It's, and so she comes to them and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. 
and we don't know where they've laid him. So notice this, Peter therefore went out and the, the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So, so they hear this news. They're racked with emotional distress, and they hear that the tomb has been opened up, the stone is rolled away. So they run to the tomb. John is writing this, and he wants us to know that they both ran together. This is like the turkey trot, but on Easter morning, it's like the first, the bunny bop. I don't know, it's the first Easter marathon. That was horrible, I'm sorry. But they ran together, and the other disciple, John is talking about himself, outran Peter. Burned him. And he came to the tomb first. I love that unnecessary detail. Now, <laughs> Peter's older too, like poor guy. It's like when my kids like now, they're like, hey dad, we want to race you. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to lose to you. So I don't. <laughs> so I love this. John includes this detail, but he's telling the story. John gets there first. Now John, notice what it says. He stoops down, he looks in. So, so he gets there. Mary says that the stone's been rolled away. John gets there first. He's a little faster than Peter. He looks in and he sees an empty tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. This is an interesting insight into John and Peter. John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. Peter gets there last. I feel this way sometimes. I resonate with Peter. I'm like usually last to the punchline or like last to the point, but Peter goes in even more deeply. He might not get there in everyone else's timing, but he eventually got there and he, he went deeper. It says Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. John just was stooping, uh, what is it called? stooping down? And he's looking in, snooping, stooping, both things, right? He's, and he's peeking in. Peter gets there, and he looks inside. He sees the linen clothes laying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, notice this, not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded together in a place by itself. This is what they see as they look in, into the tomb. Parents, this is a great verse, by the way, for your kids to make their bed, by the way, like... <laughs> Or unfold the laundry. Like, be like Jesus. When he resurrected, he folded the linens. Okay. <laughs> then the other disciple, notice this, came to the tomb. Who came first? He beat Peter. Went and also, he saw and he believed what Mary had said, that his body's not there. For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They're not thinking Jesus has been resurrected. They're thinking someone took the body. Even though they should know the scripture, even though Jesus has taught them. Hey, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to go. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, murdered, but I'm going to come back. In fact, he gives them a rendezvous point. He's like, meet me in Galilee after my resurrection. I'll see you there. But these guys are, are not getting it. They're, they're, they've lost heart. They don't believe. They're just racked with hopelessness. It says this, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. This just shows the defeat. This just shows the despair. They see that the tomb is empty, and what do they do? Do they go looking for Jesus? No, they just, they do what a lot of us do in hopelessness. They just retreat to their shell. They retreat to their home. But I love Mary. Remember Mary? But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. You could say Mary was more maybe emotionally healthy than the disciples. <laughs> well, they're bypassing their emotion. Like, I'm just going to go home and play Xbox or something get my mind off of it, go get a good meal. It's how we tend to deal with our pain as we escape it through pleasure or entertainment. Mary is just sitting in her sorrow. She's healthy. She's wearing it. She's feeling it. She's not even trying to feel it so much. She's just genuinely there. 
Sorrow has so overcome and overwhelmed her soul that it's overflowing from her eyes. She's weeping at the tomb. Mary represents bitter sorrow. This is Mary's hopelessness. If you have lost a loved one before, you know what this feels like. And the deeper the relationship, the more bitter the loss. And there's a pain there that can't be, you can try to distract it, you can try to escape it with whatever vice or distraction you have, but at the end of the day, that pain is there. And here's Mary. I think of the, the words in Lamentations. By the way, did you know that there's a whole book in the Bible on crying? Okay. The book of Lamentations is a whole book about like becoming emotionally healthy and, and living into the, whatever God is speaking to you through your emotions, pay attention to that. There's a book of Lamentations and, and it's a sad book of grief and pain. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, he says this, he says, my soul is troubled. And he uses this phrase, he says, my heart is overturned. If you've experienced real loss before, you know what that's like. Not just for your heart to be overcome and overwhelmed, but sometimes life can overturn us. Sometimes our heart can get stuck in a place of sorrow that holds us down and controls us even and is the most dominant truth in our lives. I want to say this too about Mary. What makes Mary Magdalene's sorrow so difficult here is that it's a, it's a compounded sorrow. Like, it's sad enough that she had to watch Jesus be crucified, her loved one, die before her. Now, compounded on top of that, Jesus is missing from his tomb. Like, you know the expression, adding insult to injury? Like, this is something like that, right? On top of that, she's like telling everybody, guys, he's not here. Maybe she's the one that's like, maybe he's alive, but everyone just goes home, and she's lonely. This is another way that sorrow can really overcome our hearts. Sometimes, and this is where we can think that we are invincible to the pain of life, is we're really good at having things hit us and keep going. Anybody else kind of tend to be like that? It hits you, but you keep going. You keep your head down. You keep pressing on. But there's times where this may be the grace of God, where you just have compounded losses enough to where you have to stop. This is Mary, compounded sorrow. It's not even, listen, it's not even just that this major thing happened, certainly for Mary, but in our lives, sometimes it's little things that we brush off as little things when compounded together can really weigh on us. The loss of that relationship plus the loss of that season of life that you thought was going to be one way turned out another way. Maybe the loss of a strength that you once had. Maybe it's the loss of a joy you once had, but there's great loss that results in this bitter sorrow. But notice this, here it is, here's the good news, here's where hope shows up. It's right in the midst of bitter sorrow that Jesus presents himself. Jesus doesn't say, wipe your tears, get it together, you know, you blubbering mess, okay? Fix your emotions, stop feeling that way, I'm here waiting for you when you get it together. No, Jesus shows up in the midst of her bitter sorrow. It tells us that as she, I love this, she looks again. She stooped down and she looked again into the tomb. Sometimes you have to take a second look. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus was lain. Now, were these like touched by an angel vibe angels? I don't know. Okay. it's a good reference. Um, 
Were they glowing in white? We don't know. Scriptures say that sometimes we entertain angels and we don't even know it. It was dark. It was early in the morning. So it appears that Mary is not very startled given that she sees angels and she starts having a conversation with them, which is not too normal. Okay. Not in my life, at least. Hey, angels, good morning. How are you? They say, woman, why are you weeping? Now, obviously, she's at a tomb. Like, if you're going to weep anywhere, you should weep in a graveyard. Like, that's where you weep. But, but they're getting her to think about, what is she actually sorrowful over? She said to them, well, because they've taken away my Lord, I don't know where they've laid him. I don't know where he is. Now, when she said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus in the midst, standing there. This is beautiful. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Another translation says, and later on it says, that she thought he was the gardener. That's just the gardener here, early hours, getting his weed whacker fired up. He's about to get this place looking good. Now, it was dark. It was early. Picture the scene. It tells us that she's talking to these angels, and then she turns around. I kind of, in my imagination, I think the angels are talking to her, and they give her like one of these, like, why are you weeping, you know? She turns around and sometimes this is what sorrow will do. It will impair your vision. Jesus is with you, but you don't see him. This is Mary. Maybe it's the tears in her eyes, the, the darkness around her, but she's having trouble hoping. Jesus says to her, woman, who are you seeking? She, supposing him, to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. The sorrow makes you do things that are not logical either. Like what, what is her plan here, by the way? Where's his body? I'm going to go get it and do what with it? Carry it? Like what? I mean, this is just where she's at. Sometimes you get to that place where all hope is so lost that you lose all, you don't even care anymore. She says, where is he? Now, Jesus has been speaking to her. Mary sat under the feet of Jesus, has heard his teaching. It was his very word that set her free. But it wasn't until Jesus, notice this, calls her name, Jesus said to her, Mary, Miriam. So he turned, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. This is a significant moment in her sorrow. The thing that changed it all, listen, for Mary in her pain and her sorrow, the thing that brought her joy back wasn't answers to all of her questions. A lot of people are asking her questions here. She's not able to answer them. Why are you crying? I don't want to tell you. Who are you seeking? I have no answer. The thing that set Mary free in her sorrow was the recognition of Jesus. He said, I see you. Called her name. There's something, listen, there's something that changes in your life when you go from knowing about God to, listen, sensing that he knows you, that he sees you, that he knows your name, that he created you, that he loves you, and that even in your pain, he's there. He says, I see you, I know you, I love you, I'm with you. When hope shows up, Jesus is there speaking our name. He calls our name. Some of us today, we just need to hear Jesus say our name. To, to just put his finger and say, I see your pain. I see what you're feeling. And maybe no one else gets it, but I'm here and I know you. And the one you need most is here. I'm here. This is what restores Mary's joy. 
she, she immediately gets up. She starts to cling to Jesus. I mean, talk about hope restored. The Bible says that it's in God's presence that there's fullness of joy. Not just happiness, which is based on happenings, but joy that's based on the faithful presence of Jesus and what we're going through. And joy begins to overwhelm her sorrowful soul. And the source of it is his very presence. She clings to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't cling to me here, for I've not yet ascended to my Father. That's a whole other sermon about the ascension and how if she clings to Jesus there physically, she can only have him right there. But if Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, Mary can be in the darkest moment of her life, and Jesus will always be with her at the right hand of the Father. So he sends her. I love this. Mary Magdalene came, and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. And then we get to these guys, these disciples. What a bunch of dudes, these guys. <laughs> the disciples, they represent, as Mary now comes to him, they represent this. They represent hope showing up in the midst of crippling fear, providing peace. Mary's bitter sorrow, hope shows up and it restores her joy. She goes with this great joy in her heart. The, the, the story of Mary's life is no longer defined just by what's happened to her and her sorrow. The story of her life is Jesus is with me and I have joy. And she carries that joy into the presence of his followers. There's actually more than just the 10 here. There's other of Jesus' followers in the room at this moment. And she comes to his disciples and tells them, she came and told them that, that she's seen the Lord and he had spoken these things to her. Now, what are the disciples doing? Well, they're doing what we maybe would unfortunately expect them to do. They're hiding. That same day at evening, this is now Sunday evening, being the first day of the week, it says the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled Notice this, for fear of the Jews. Now Jesus appears again in the midst of them. He came and stood and said, peace be with you. So Mary's hopelessness manifests as sorrow. For the disciples, their hopelessness, they were banking everything on Jesus. Jesus is now dead. His body is missing. And so their hopelessness now manifests as fear and anxiety. And so what do they do? They have a church service with locked doors they assemble together. It was barely a church service. They're gathering together. All they have is each other, and they're terrified. I mean, this is a, a picture of what fear can do, you know? F fear is this idea of, like, I need to put walls up to keep the danger out, but fear really locks you in. You know what I mean? It keeps you trapped by these worries and these anxieties that are, that are mostly, statistically, actually, just your imagination, because most of the things we worry about never happen. But maybe there was a credible threat here. Maybe we could sympathize with the disciples. I mean, they're his followers. Jesus is dead. We're next. They watched the crucifixion. It's interesting. Yet, Jesus has begun to appear to them. Isn't this interesting? In fact, another translation tells us that Jesus has already appeared to Peter. That's a whole nother journey too with Peter and Jesus after his resurrection. It's like the disciples up in this room, they're in this place between believing God, believing that he's faithful, knowing his word, knowing what he's promised, yet also still being afraid of what's out there. You ever live there? I know what you have to say, God. I know, Jesus, that you're alive, but this is still really scary. This is overcoming me. This is still, in some ways, equal to you. And what does that look like in your life? How has fear controlled you? How have you created a compromise where you're both fearing God and man? How, how have you settled into this like pseudo-Christian 
uh, a position of God is true and he died for my sins, but I don't want to rock the boat too much. I don't want to get into too much trouble. I just want to play it safe and secure. I'm afraid of what people might think of me. I'm afraid of what they might do to me. And these are the disciples. They're crippled by fear. I mean, how many times did Jesus tell them, guys, don't be afraid, right? It's funny, it doesn't, and that's like the most used commandment in the Bible is don't be afraid. I mean, how many times is Jesus' sermons just that? He's like, guys, just it's chill out. It's okay. That's his sermon mostly. Don't be afraid. No matter what they've heard, fear still tends to loom large, whatever it is that we can be controlled by. But notice what happens. Jesus comes, for, listen, he shows up right in the midst of fear. He doesn't say, hey, work on that whole fear thing. Watch a movie about courage and figure it out, okay? He shows up in the midst and he says to them, notice this, peace be with you. And then I love this. And then he shows him his hands and his side. This is incredible. One of the things Jesus taught to his disciples was, do not fear man. There's no greater wasted life than, than a life that's wasted in the fear of man. I'm telling you, you guys, we, we can all do this. We can lose whole decades of our life being afraid of man. What they think about me, what I'm gonna do, what my friends are gonna think about my faith in Jesus. I've gotta be somewhat bold. Listen, and there's something about this moment here where Jesus shows up. He's told them, don't be afraid of man. And here's what Jesus has said. He's echoed the Psalms. Because what can man really do to you? Well, Jesus taught them, don't fear man, fear God. Don't fear man who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. Fear God. And here's Jesus like, look at what man's done to me. I've experienced what you're afraid of. I've gone to the grave, but Jesus presents himself as victorious over that. Isn't that amazing? It's like, look what man can do to you, but look at me standing before you right now. This is the hope of Christianity. We're courageous, not because we're strong. We're courageous because Jesus is alive. And he's conquered death. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus dealt with that already. And he has us in his very hands. And he present, And this is what's amazing. It's like what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's recapturing their awe. Because they're awe struck by terror. They're, they're, they're just zoned in on the worst thing that could happen. Jesus is like, okay, that's all amazing. Look at this, though. Look at these hands that were once dead that are alive before you. And they're now glad and they're in awe of him. And there's something about this. There's something about a vision of who God is that casts out fear. There's something about um, taking whatever it is you're afraid of and bowing it before the greatness of God and seeing him as higher seeing him as greater, seeing his perspective as you as mattering more. And this is what changed the disciples. And what did it do? It brought them peace. Jesus said to them, peace to you as the Father sent me. I also send you. You have a mission, okay? Like, um, you guys are hiding, but you've been sent to seek. It's kind of the idea. You've been sent to go out and be used by me. It's sad how the fear of man can actually limit our purpose. Like, how is fear holding you from what God's called you to? Being who God's called you to be, doing the thing he sent you to do. Now, notice this. When he said this to them, I love this, and this is something that I took personal even this morning. It says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, 
What kind of air are you breathing this morning? If you haven't noticed, the oxygen of our culture is the, is the oxygen of fear. Anybody else notice that? Everything in our culture is designed to make you afraid of the world, afraid of what will happen to you. And the enemy just preys on this. There's a real enemy. The Bible says, who even fear God. They know who he is, but they, they want to blind us to that. And so we can breathe the air of fear. We can breathe the air of the culture. And Jesus into that says this, receive my breath. Breathe in my spirit. Breathe in my strength. Breathe in my presence. Can I tell you, this is how we should start every day of our lives as followers of Jesus. We start our day, our feet hit the floor, and we just say, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. I just want to empty my fear before you. And if we don't do this, we'll carry that stuff around. Lord, fill me. let me breathe you in this morning. The power of your spirit so that when I go into my workplace, I'm going as someone who represents you, unashamed of the gospel. Someone whom you've loved, and I'm going to love you as well. This is what Jesus does for the disciples. He shows up in the midst of their crippling fear, providing peace. And then, hey, I got one more for you, and then we're out of here. Last one is our guy, Thomas. Bathroom at the wrong time, Thomas a.k.a. the twin. Mary's hopelessness was manifested as bitter sorrow, and it was in that pain that Jesus showed up present and spoke her name and said, I'm with you, I see you, and joy was restored. The disciples are living in crippling fear, and it's his very presence that speaks peace over them. It's the awe and wonder of what he's overcome that fills them with courage as they breathe in his peace. But as the Bible tells us, there was one missing named Thomas. And Thomas represents the story of someone where Jesus shows up. His resurrection means that today, if this is you, he can show up right where you are and he can restore something for you. Thomas represents someone who's been jaded into unbelief. Anybody ever been jaded before? Okay. You ever met a difficult Christian before? Okay, that's a more. Two hands? Wow, we're doing well. Praise the Lord. Or maybe you're so jaded you'd even want to raise your hand. Maybe that's what it really is. You're just like, yeah, you, you know, okay. It's fine. I agree with you. Um, Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Talk about FOMO. You know, this is like the ultimate, you should have been there. And he's like, I know. Thanks for reminding me. Thomas, for whatever reason, and scripture doesn't tell us why. But Thomas isn't there when Jesus shows up in the room and breathes his peace on the disciples. The other disciples, they, they give Thomas a testimony. Thomas shows up. He's like, why, why are you guys all white in the face? What's going on? What happened? I just went out to get some hummus and bread and I came back and you guys are like, what's good? Did he die yet? Like, what's up? And they're like, Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas, I imagine him like taking a few steps back. Like, don't do that to me. Thomas is an interesting character. He gets a bad rap. Because the next verse is where Thomas says, unless I see his hand, Thomas, Thomas creates some conditions. Okay, I hear what you're saying. And even though you're, you should be, that's 10 reliable sources. There's actually other people in this room. Mary's over there. Ever, you all saw him. You say that. But Thomas refuses to believe the good news of Jesus. And he gives a condition. He goes, well, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails, 
I love this. He's like, not only do I have to see it, but I have to touch it with my, I have to like, I am so not believing this. Unless I can do that, put my hands into his side. Thomas says this, maybe you said this before, unless this, I will not believe. I won't. I can't. Now, this poor guy, who's just a dude struggling with hopelessness, has been, for all of history, named Doubting Thomas. That's his new first name. Like in a phone book, it's like Thomas, Doubting. That's like, this is the guy. Remember phone books? Okay. It's like, Thomas, you should believe. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe people have labeled you. Maybe, you've had, maybe you have been jaded. Maybe you've been disenfranchised. Maybe people have done unchristlike things in the name of Christ towards you. Maybe you look on at the American church and you're like, what is that? What is that? Like, I don't... And you go, I, I just, I, I don't believe, I can't, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe it. And maybe you're like, here's what, and, and, and instead of people coming to you and saying, what's, what's going on in your life? Why are you there? People just say, you're a doubter. You're like doubting Thomas. Just believe, just believe. Now, if you think about Thomas's story, this guy, I don't think, I don't believe Thomas is doubting Thomas. I believe Thomas is jaded Thomas. Can we change it? Like from, we're gonna go out into the world and we're gonna change his name, for, okay? Jaded Thomas. Thomas, listen, Thomas was a man of great faith. When he was walking with Jesus and, and Jesus is like, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and they're gonna kill me. Thomas is like, great, let's all go die with you. That's what Thomas said. Thomas was sold, his whole life was surrendered to Jesus. This is a man of great faith. Listen, even people of great faith can end up jaded because of disappointment. Thomas was disappointed. Maybe you know what that's like to, to experience perpetual disappointments. He was trusting in Jesus and there's Jesus dying. His hope is lost. The Bible says that hope deferred can make the heart sick. There's a lot of people in that place today. There's a lot of people that have heard the gospel of Jesus. It's been reported to them that, listen, you have sinned and fall short of God's standard. You, you have not been who God created you to be, but God sent his son Jesus to save you and restore you. And listen, you're going to die one day, but through Jesus, you can have the hope of eternal life. And people look on at that and it glimmers, but they're jaded. They go, I can't. I just can't. I won't. I won't believe that. I've experienced too much disappointment. I've you know, in some ways, I blame God for what I've experienced. I can't even believe I'm at church this morning. If it wasn't for my in-laws, you know, or my family member that made me come here today. And I just want you to see, I want you to see how Jesus responds to jaded Thomas. Eight days later, his disciples are gathered again. Thomas is with them. Jesus comes. The doors are shut. Stood in the midst. He said, peace to you. Then he turns to Thomas. I mean, I imagine at this point, Thomas is like, Jesus, I don't need to touch your hands. I see you. I'm sorry I said that. Okay. I also love that, like, Thomas is also like, you overheard me say that. I didn't see you, but you were somehow, you're God and stuff, so you're always there and you were listening. Okay. 
Look at what Jesus does. He says, look here. Look at my wounds. Look at the cross. Look at the payment I've made. Look at my hands that were pierced for your sin. Look at the love of God displayed, evident here in my death and resurrection. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. I want you to hear this. To the jaded person in the room that says, Jesus, I will not believe because of all these things that people, people have done. Jesus comes to you today and he says, I understand, but look. I still died for you. I still love you. My wounds still pay your ransom. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. Jesus says, the gospel, to the jaded person in the room, Jesus says, the gospel is the gospel. It's still good news. I know what they've done. Let's get, the, hold on, look at Jesus. Jesus says, here's the evidence. We could be so focused on, on the hands of what other people have done to us. Look at the hands of Jesus. Here's the ultimate test. Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise? That's your question to display his love for you. And Jesus comes to you today and he says, I could give you great physical evidence, but don't be unbelieving. Don't let your jaded heart keep you from the gift of my love for you. So whether today your hopelessness is that of bitter sorrow, maybe it's the hopelessness or you've had some experience with the hopelessness of, of anxiety and crippling fear, or maybe you like Thomas or the guy who's jaded because you expected one thing and an outcome has been different. I want to remind you that on Easter this morning as we gather here, here's what we're celebrating. Hope can show up for you, even today. Hope has ultimately showed up in the person of Jesus, and he wants to show up in your life today. You're not just saved by his death. You're saved by the presence of his life, who is with you. Amen?